and welcome to Perspectives, the APT's podcast which explores contemporary issues related to torture prevention and dignity in detention. I'm Almodena Garcia, APT's Digital Communication Advisor, and we are delighted to share with you an interview with Alka Pradhan, an extraordinary lawyer and advocate for torture prevention. Adjunct Professor of Law at the University of Pennsylvania, Ms. Pradhan also serves as Human Rights Counsel at the Guantanamo Bay Military Commissions. Over a number of years, she has seen firsthand the impact of torture on defendants she has represented. Ms. Pradhan was also member of the Expert Drafting Committee for the Mendes Principles on Effective Interviewing sharing her deep insights into the application of human rights to counterterrorism situations and the impact of torture on fair trials. She is also a forthright media commentator on these issues. We began our conversation with Ms. Pradhan reflecting on the physical and psychological consequences that torture and ill-treatment has on people who are detained and interrogated. Well, in my experience, there are three impacts, um, sort of distinct impacts on uh, on individuals after they've been tortured. The first, of course, is physical. That's what everyone thinks about. Uh, and those are the literal scars uh, that remain after the torture is over. So for example, one of my clients uh, had his head bashed against a wall, and so he's got parts of his brain actually missing. Things like that. Um, they have scars from the beatings. They have uh, damage to their ligaments, to their joints that cause them pain every day. So those, that's the physical impact that they have to live with at their daily reminders of their torture. The second is the psychological impact, as you mentioned, on, on their mental health. And those are the scars that remain when everything else is gone. And those manifest in different ways. Um, anything can trigger a psychological impact, right? There are um, what we call trauma triggers, things like smells and sounds and even the sound of someone's voice a certain way can uh, trigger the fear that existed during the actual torture. And, uh, and those triggers can stay for a very, very long time, perhaps even for the rest of their lives. In addition to those triggers, there are actual psychological conditions that are caused by torture that are exacerbated by these triggers. Things like post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, depression, panic attacks in some cases. They manifest differently in every person, but every person has both physical and psychological remnants of their torture. And the third thing that I just want to mention that I feel like is often skipped over is it's also psychological, but it is the psychological aspect of being separated from, in many cases, when you're in detention, after you've been tortured, being separated from your family. Because once something has happened to you, like that once you have been tortured there's this constant fear that something may happen to your family similar things may happen to your family and you can't protect them from that perhaps either because you're detained or because you yourself are so debilitated from that torture that you can't protect them and that is a whole separate set of psychological concerns for these people who have been tortured that's so interesting and beyond this impact on individuals Torture can also compromise investigations. What is the impact of torture-tamed evidence on investigations and more broadly on our institutions and the rule of law? So, very simply, when individuals speak 
out of fear, those statements are not voluntary. And if they're not voluntary, then they cannot be reliable. And I've seen this in my work at Guantanamo Bay. I've seen it, honestly, in my work at the International Criminal Court, that there is this idea that, well, if I didn't torture them personally, if someone else tortured them and I didn't do anything and I'm not torturing them while I'm asking them questions, then what they're saying to me must still must be voluntary, must be true. Uh, and that is false. Once someone is tortured, it is extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible, to remove the fear associated with that torture. Uh, and so, you know, we see often investigators and prosecutors say, well, they were tortured by other people, right? And what they said to me, they were drinking a cup of coffee and they were fine. And what we actually know is that, you know, I was talking about triggers. There are these little triggers, right? That of the smell or the tone of someone's voice, if it's similar to what they heard while they were being tortured, can trigger those fears. And so it's very, very important for everyone in, you know, in sort of our system of justice to understand how delicate the balance is once, some, once someone has been tortured. And, you know, as far as institutions go, institutions from, again, the investigators, prosecutors, judges, and lawyers all need to understand how coercion manifests, right, after torture, that it's not just the act of waterboarding or beating that it's everything that comes afterwards that then has to be closely monitored to ensure that there is no additional coercion. And I think that is where um, we find the most problem nowadays. And in relation to ending this culture of torture and ill-treatment, what are some of the key lessons that you have learned from your experience working with defendants at the Guantanamo Bay Military Commissions? The main lesson I've learned um, from working at Guantanamo, and honestly, in my practice generally, where I represent uh, defendants who are not often very popular uh, because they've been charged with serious crimes, is that every human being is affected by torture. Uh, it doesn't matter whether they are innocent or a witness or guilty or, you know, someone you think is the worst person in the world. Everyone is susceptible to both the physical and psychological effects of torture. There is no person on earth who is subhuman or immune to those effects. And I think we try to justify often, we as a society, try to justify the use of torture by saying, well, these people are monsters or these people are, you know, have done horrible things and they must therefore be different from normal human beings. And that's just not true. That's false. And so, you know, in some of the people who have done, have, have done or have been accused of some really heinous crimes, you know, you have to accept the truth that two things can be true. Someone can be accused of a heinous crime and someone can also be the victim of torture and suffer from that torture. I think that that is an understanding that we still need to work on. And now I'd like to discuss with you the new Mendes principles on effective interviewing. How can the principles help address some of these systemic challenges and issues that you've mentioned? So... I think the strength of the Mendes principles is that they are practical. They are essentially an A to Z guide for simple steps that can be taken at every juncture in the justice system, starting with the investigation process. How do we investigate? What safeguards do we put in place to make sure that 
any coercion is minimized, right? Then we get to sort of detention, right? Detention is in and of itself a coercive situation. People have lost their agency. And so, again, prosecutors and, and defense lawyers have to be super hyper aware of what the baseline detention conditions are and what, uh, what on top of that would be coercive. And the Mendez principles offer really, really good practical advice for the safeguards you can put in place to make sure that additional coercion does not happen. I think the key point is that even beyond the prosecution uh, stage, when you get in front of the judges, judges need to understand where elements of coercion come in. And again, the principles are very, very clear on what judges should be looking for, what they should be aware of, what questions they should be asking, right? What should call their attention to potential coercion that could taint the case in front of them and therefore taint a potential judgment. And so my, I think the, the biggest value of the Mendez principles, which is holds extraordinary value, the biggest uh, benefit is that they are so practical. And you were invited to join the drafting team of the Mendes Principles. What insights and considerations do you feel were especially valuable to contribute to the drafting process? There were two priorities for me in, um, in contributing to the drafting process of the Mendes Principles. The first was that it needed to be clear, it needed to memorialize that the principles and this, this idea of non-coercion is the responsibility of every member of the justice system. So again, from all the way from the initial taking someone into custody or just interviewing them as a witness, all the way through to potential conviction and post-trial detention, every member of that chain has a duty to contribute, to educate themselves, to abide by the standards of non-coercion. Um, and at the worst, the prohibition on torture and CIDT. So that was the first concern for me, and which I think was um, was really well addressed in our final version of the principles that make clear that uh, it's the full process um, that this is applicable to. The second priority for me was um, given my experience uh, dealing with cases that arise out of terrorism situations or security situations or war situations, those situations tend to be characterized by states as special, right? These are, these are the most urgent situations. These are the situations that require special techniques or in which often end up being torture uh, or at the very least coercive. And so one of my priorities was ensuring that what we wrote would be applicable in all circumstances. And I think we accomplished that. We based the principles in many, most cases on customary international law, which is binding in any case. Um, but they come from so many different traditions. And we made clear throughout that these are baseline principles that apply in police investigations from, you know, for minor theft, all the way up to the biggest terrorism case, you know, that in the past may have been dealt with through secret detention or torture or some other means. So... The hope is that uh, states will understand that these apply everywhere. That actually leads me to my next question, which is about the fact that the principles are presented in concise and accessible language and that they are applicable, as you said, in any circumstance. Can you describe the process and maybe some of the challenges as well in developing a framework that can be applied in such a wide range of circumstances and across diverse legal systems. 
Sure. So I think what is funny or what became very clear through the, the process of drafting the principles is that really the science of torture and the fact that torture is ineffective and immoral and illegal has been known for centuries. There is a wealth of writing about that, um, a wealth of studies, cases, you know, historical going back four or 500 years. And so we were able to draw on a rich variety of Western tradition, Eastern tradition, international law, domestic law. You know, we were looking to the African Commission, we were looking to um, really all of these different, uh, all of these different bodies of jurisprudence. And so, you know, I think many people think that it was a challenge to pull together the law. It was not. The challenge was that anytime you have a group of uh, lawyers, and we're not all lawyers, but lawyers drafting uh, the body, we like to uh, put in substantive citations to everything. We like to substantiate all of our points with all the relevant cases and all the relevant arguments. And um, the good news for us was that we had that research. We had all of that support. But the, the difficulty, I think, was in distilling it down to what, what the basic principles needed to be, the practical kind of guidelines. I think we were successful, um, time will tell, but I think we were successful in doing so. And uh, the good news is that that body of research is there. If anyone wants to know where did principle number two, where did principle number four come from, we've got all of that information and it's, it's available. So implementation by enforcement, security, and other institutions is obviously key to the effectiveness of the Mendes principles. And a hashtag that we use at the APT and other partners are also using is shift the mindset. What do you think are some of the factors that will help drive the implementation by states and shift the mindset uh, that we know is false, that torture works? One of the big strengths of the Mendes principles is for the first time, we marry the science with the law. And I think that, you know, many people have talked about, look, torture doesn't work, but have not explained why. And that's because, you know, a lot of research has been done just in the past 10 or 20 years about this. And so we know more now than we did two decades ago, certainly 100 years ago, about why torture doesn't work. Um, we can point to studies of the brain. We can point to how the brain changes, how false memories are implanted. And I think a lot of that we drew on on that body of science in drafting the principles and wanted to make sure that it had not just a legal basis, not just lawyers telling the world like this is a bad thing to do, but explaining why. And I think that that is tremendously powerful. And I think if we are able to use that and educate states from the ground up, from you know, local police all the way up to the judiciary and you know, ambassadors and people who end up sitting on the international courts, using that science, then that will eventually shift the mindset. It will take time, but I think that basis of science will help. Mm -hmm, definitely. And the final question relates to your experience as a regular media commentator on the issues we've been discussing. What impact... Mm. <laughs> How important is it to shift the mindset in relation to community awareness and support for torture prevention? It is absolutely critical to shift the mindset. And I hope this hashtag takes off, I really do, because it is absolutely critical. We still live in a world where torture is shown as entertainment um, everywhere, um, in, in children's films, right? All the way up to uh, the sorts of television shows that become extremely popular and then influence, in a case of art influencing life, right? Influence real-time interrogations. Uh, we saw it on TV, so it must work. 
And that has all colored the public's perception of, you know, whether or not torture works. Well, these lawyers tell us it doesn't work, but, you know, this famous actor did it in a film and it looked really effective, so we don't know what to believe. And that's not to, to undercut the intelligence of the public, but when you are bombarded with that sort of misinformation constantly, it is difficult. It becomes a difficult question. And so, you know, I think we would need to, in terms of shifting the mindset, we need to focus on that link between the science and the pursuit of justice, right? That if we continue to use coercive techniques, if we don't adopt these standards of effective interviewing, we corrupt our own justice system. And so we need to, the, the way in which the mindset needs to shift is really, uh, which would be ideal, is to get the public, instead of calling for prosecutions or confessions, or convictions calling for justice, right? Calling for truth-seeking rather than just the simple pursuit of convictions. I think that will lead us, that will show us in any case that the mindset has shifted. Alka Berdan is currently Human Rights Counsel at the Guantanamo Bay Military Commission. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Perspectives. We'll be back soon with another episode. And if you have an idea for us to cover on Perspectives, we'd love to hear from you. Contact us via email on apt at apt.ch or find us on our social media, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to your company next time.